0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and of course, everything in between. I know I forgot to do that last episode, but forgive me. It's okay. We'll survive. Now, if you remember last episode, we talked about Cindy James up until around 1984. And that was just the beginning of her traumatic experience as an adult. This week, we're going to finish off with the remaining years of her life and the weird shit going on around her death. Yes, yeah, spoiler alert, she died. If that wasn't obvious. Anyway, this is part two of Cindy James. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone sort of breathing Omidus. now before we get started I do have to apologize again if this sounds a little bit different I've been going through midlife crisis with microphones again so we're trying out a different one this is a ribbon microphone so it sounds a little bit muddier but it's supposed to I don't know I have weird things with microphones sometimes I like them sometimes I hate them We're just going to go with it this week, and we'll find out how it sounds. Anyway, on to Cindy. Now, if you remember, the last thing that happened to her, she was seeing a hypnotherapist and recounted some her past memories, but didn't divulge any further details about the double murder she supposedly witnessed. Now, on to 1985. Following the attack in July of 1984, Cindy continued to receive anonymous phone calls, but none were long enough to be adequately traced by police and police surveillance of her home provided nothing as well. In January of 1985, while under hypnosis, Cindy told police she had witnessed her ex-husband murder a man and woman, then dismember their bodies with an axe while the couple were vacationing at a cabin in Thormanby Island near Sechelt, I think that's how you say it, I have no idea, in July of 1981. That's a weird spelling, it's like a yacht. Listen to this, S-E-C-H-E-L-T, sekelt. I don't know. Anyway, according to Cindy, Makepeace smeared blood from one of the victim's severed limbs across her face during the dismemberment. It was later discovered that Cindy's sister, Melanie, was with her on vacation and had no recollection of anything sinister ever occurring. This is one of those dream situations where your wife or husband or partner wakes up and they're mad at you because you did something to them in their dream. I mean, come on now. Now, in late June of 1985, Cindy was involuntarily committed to the psychiatric unit at Vancouver's Lion Gate Hospital after attempted suicide by overdosing on prescription drugs. Though she later said she had not intended to kill herself. Typical, typical response. On July 2nd, she agreed to allow police to wiretap her phone conversations with Makepeace during which she accused him of being the source of her problems and confronted him about the memory she recounted under hypnosis of him murdering two people. During the conversation, Makepeace denied the incidents, deeming Cindy was quote-unquote insane and involved in enormous revenge fantasies. Following this recorded call, the RCMP offered officers to maintain a 24-hour surveillance of Cindy, Makepeace, and two other unnamed suspects over a week-long period. The surveillance was ultimately terminated after nothing unusual was observed. Authorities further investigated Cindy's claims regarding the alleged dismemberments committed by Makepeace and found no evidence of any murders or missing person cases in the Gulf Islands at the time. Makepeace's attorney stated that the accusation led authorities on a wild goose chase, literally quote-unquote wild goose chase, searching for the cabin location of the alleged murders, which they were unable to find. Cindy received a package at her home in early July containing a charcoal-colored nylon stocking, along with a note saying, ''Blood flowing freely.'' Several weeks later, on July 27th, she found a cosmetics container on her front porch containing putrefied raw meat from a small animal. On July 5th, Cindy called into the police station recording a fire in her home. Authorities found what appeared to be pieces of burnt newspaper scattered throughout the room. Another fire was reported by Cindy the following day. Now, on August 21st, a third fire broke out in the basement of Cindy's home in the bathroom at around 4.45 a.m. When firefighters and police arrived at the residence, they observed Cindy in a heated discussion with a private investigator, the man known as Caban, we talked about him earlier and last episode, explaining that he had taken her dog out for a walk at approximately 3.15 a.m. and returned home to discover everything ablaze. The window of the bathroom was found partly ajar by authorities, but the soot and dust on the windowsill showed no markings that an intruder had entered or exited through it. Charred remnants of a newspaper were discovered in the bathroom, just like before. A detective who investigated the fire later testified that he believed Cindy had started the fire herself. In the fall of 1985, Dr. Anthony Marcus, a psychologist, was requested by Carol Halliday of the RCMP to conduct interviews with Cindy and examine the various case files. Halliday, who had become involved with the case after reporting with a colleague, at the August 21st fire incident, felt Cindy was lying and orchestrating her attacks, and that various male officers who investigated them for her had been, quote, conned by the histrionics of a pretty woman. Based on his interviews and analysis of police records, Marcus offered his professional opinion that Cindy may have been suffering from disassociative identity disorder, stemming from a childhood traumatic incident, though he did not question Cindy about her early life during their interviews. On December 1st, Cindy relocated to a new house in Richmond, B.C. Ten days later, on December 11th, at approximately 6 p.m., she was found by motorists semi-conscious in a ditch approximately 6 kilometers, or 3.71 miles, from her home near the University of British Columbia's campus. She was wearing men's work boots and a single glove. And again, a nylon stocking was tied tightly around her neck. Due to frigid temperatures being Canada and all, Cindy was suffering from hypothermia and was rushed to a local hospital, where it was suspected she had been injected with some sort of tranquilizer. She also exhibited bruising and various cuts on her body. When interviewed in the hospital, Cindy claimed to have no memory of what occurred or how she had gotten to the location where she had been found. Her last memory was going to have lunch during her workday, after which she stopped at a local pharmacy. Feeling a little bummed that police didn't really believe her or anything she had to say anymore, she flew to visit her brother Roger in West Germany for Christmas. In early of 1986, Cindy formally changed her last name from Makepeace, the surname of her ex-husband, to James hoping to further conceal her identity. To help assuage her fear, her friend Agnes Woodcock and her husband Tom sometimes spent nights at Cindy's home. On April 16th, the couple were awoken by Cindy, who stated she had heard a commotion in the house. Upon investigating, they found another fire had been started in the basement. When they attempted to phone the fire department, they found Cindy's phone was dead. Tom fled across the street to a neighbor's residence to call the police, and when exiting the house, claimed to have witnessed a man standing on the street outside of the house. When Tom approached him, the subject fled on foot. Cindy stayed with the Woodcocks for several days following the fire where they noticed she refused to eat and made comments that her life was no longer worth living. Alan Connolly, a psychiatrist who had been treating Cindy since January of 1983, met with her and stated that though she had long believed her allegations of harassment, he feared suicide was on the table. Connolly had her committed to the psychiatric ward of St. Paul's Hospital for two weeks, while there, it was observed that she was suffering from anorexia and depression. She was subsequently transferred to Riverview Hospital, where a comprehensive psychological exam was conducted. The report noted, quote, This 41-year-old woman on initial assessment was very resistant. She had only answered one-word responses. She refused to discuss a number of topics and would give no eye contact. On the second date, her mood was considerably elevated. She completed the other tests herself and was willing to talk. She seemed apprehensive as to how the tests could be used. She maintained good eye contact except when discussing the terrorizing incidents. She then would look away and cover her eyes and speak haltingly. She expressed upset and cried a great deal when relating these incidents. Patient kept asking if her responses to the items indicated she was crazy. Her IQ is well above average. This type of individual can be characterized as negativistic, and conforming they have unpredictable moods including pessimism sullenness facilitating with social agreement and friendliness they tend to anticipate and precipitate disappointments through their obstructive and negative behavior this type of person tends to be vulnerable to fears now after a 10 week hospital stay cindy was released according to her father she told him that she had been withholding information regarding her alleged attacks stating that she knew the identity of her assailant but refused to name him. Now that does bring back some memories of her supposed fiancé who died of mysterious causes, no, I think it was cancer, back in the day when she refused to name him or even introduce him to their family because reasons. Anyway, let's move on to 1987 through 1989, and in August of 87, Cinda began working as a nurse in Richmond General Hospital. On August 28th, her home alarm was triggered after a back window was broken, and three days later, on August 31st, she reported to police that her front porch light bulbs had been loosened. The following week, she reported that someone had used a glass cutter to create a hole in her basement window. In February of 1988, Cindy indicated that someone had shattered a window to her home after securing it with electrical tape. On August 11th, 1988, Makepeace received two strange voice messages on his home answering machine. One of the messages contained a hoarse voice speaking the phrase, quote, Cindy, dead meat soon, while the other stated, quote, more smack, more downers, another grand after we waste the cunt, no more deal. He gave the answering machine tapes to his attorney as he distrusted the Vancouver police at this point because they had suspected him of being the culprit and he continued to feel that he may be targeted as a suspect after giving them these tapes. Fifteen days later, Cindy was found unconscious in her garage yet again. She had been hogtied, was nude from the waist down, and again a black nylon stocking tied around her neck. At this time, the RCMP hired a mountain climber and knot expert, Robert Chisnall, to analyze the knots on the nylon stockings she had frequently been found bound with. At the time, Chisnall concluded that it was highly unlikely that Cindy would have been able to secure such knots herself. In January of 1989, Richard Johnston, a life insurance salesman from whom Cindy had purchased a policy, moved into the basement of the unit of her residence. She offered him the rental space on the basis that she felt more safe with someone else living with her. It's very similar to her cop boyfriend from years ago. On April 8th, a security guard at Richmond General Hospital, where Cindy was employed, discovered a note on the premises crafted with cut-and-paste letters which read, Soon Cindy! The phrase, sleep well, was also found written in the dew on her windshield. Following a reported attempted break-in at her home on April 29th, the RCMP used scent hounds in an attempt to track the alleged intruder, but the dogs found no trail. On May 10th, 1989, scent hounds were again utilized following another alleged break-in and were able to track the scent of an unknown individual that led over the backyard fence of Cindy's home. So what were the conclusions that the RCMP came to? Well, over the course of nearly seven years, as Cindy had reported the various incidents, the RCMP spent an estimated $1 to $1.5 million of resources investigating her claims. But despite this, no evidence could ever be found to corroborate any of her stories. Just circumstantial stuff. We have the letters, which she could have done herself. We have the phone calls, which are a little weird, I guess. We can't really prove who did those. And we have some scent hounds tracking down some shit. We also have her being hogtied in her own basement and found unconscious several times, some of which could be attributed to her, some of which could be attributed to an attacker or an assailant or somebody she paid to do for her. You know, people do weird things. Now, because of this, the ongoing time and the amount of money spent, authorities suspected that Cindy was inventing the incidents herself, and she appeared to be staging them as though she were a victim of a violent stalker. Cindy expressed frustration with... The police department, aside from one detective, Jerry Anderson. In a complaint she filed against the RCMP for her perceived dismissal by several officers, she positively singled out Anderson, quote, for his patient's unfailing professional conduct and his exemplary investigation of the case. He is the only member of the RCMP I feel I can trust and be comfortable with. And that was that. Well, that was that up until May May 25th, 1989. Cindy picked up her paycheck from Richmond General Hospital at approximately 4 p.m. There she spoke with a co-worker who reported that she seemed to be in good spirits and said Cindy informed her that she had not experienced any suspicious activity at her home for about two weeks. Cindy was then last seen several hours later purchasing groceries at a Safeway supermarket and visiting a bank of Montreal in the Blundell Shopping Centre a bank patron told police that they had stood in line behind Cindy at the bank's ATM where she deposited her paycheck at approximately 8 p.m. That same day, Cindy had scheduled to have an infrared detection system installed in her home for security purposes and had planned for her friend Agnes and Tom to come play bridge and spend the night. After not hearing from Cindy for some time, the Woodcocks went over to her house where they found her front door locked and her car A Chevy Citation, I didn't even know that was a car, was gone, it was absent, not there. They briefly spoke with Johnston, who informed them that she had mentioned earlier that she was going to do some shopping. The Woodcocks drove past the Blundell Shopping Center, which they knew Cindy to frequent, and found her car abandoned in the lot. Naturally, they drove to the Richmond RCMP station to report Cindy as a missing person. Though she had only been missing for several hours, a patrol car was sent to investigate based on her extensive history with the police department. Upon examination of the vehicle, blood was located inside the car on the driver's side door as well as groceries and a wrapped birthday gift for her friend's young son. Contents from Cindy's wallet were found laying underneath the vehicle. A subsequent investigation of her home that night showed nothing had been disturbed police observed that the house was orderly and clean and filled with numerous well-tended house The Canadian Coast Guard deployed a search of the rivers of the area as well as the Gulf of Georgia in an attempt to locate the missing woman. Several days after Cindy was reported missing, her tenant Johnston informed police that he had received a call at his office from a man claiming to be her father, inquiring about her life insurance policy. Johnston secretly informed the caller that he would need to visit the office as a private insurance matter could not be relayed over the phone. When authorities questioned Cindy's father, he denied ever making the phone call. On June 8, 1989, Gordon Starchuk, a municipal paving worker, discovered Cindy's body in the backyard of an abandoned house at 811 Blundell Road, Richmond. Her body was hogtied with rope in the fetal position, and a black nylon stocking was bound tightly around her neck. Cindy's right leg lay beneath a bramble of blackberry bushes and her coat was found laying near her body. The property where her remains were found was situated along a busy street near an intersection which had frequent foot traffic from pedestrians. On the resident's exterior fuel tank, police found graffiti in orange spray paint reading, some bitch died here. A line sprayed behind along the ground with the same orange paint ran from the fuel tank to the spot where her body lay, encircling it. Inside the abandoned home, another spray-painted Graffiti Red Devil was found. Sheila Carlyle, a pathologist who examined Cindy's body at the scene, noted that her hands had been bound so tightly that one finger had scratched another down to the bone. A pinprick consistent with a hypodermic needle was located on her inner right elbow and based on insect and larva activity on the body, forensic entomologist Gail Anderson concluded that the body had begun decomposition at the site where it was found as early as June 2nd, 1989. An autopsy determined that Cindy had died from multiple drug intoxications and substantial amounts of morphine, diazepam, and fluorazepam. Her blood toxicology report showed that she had 10 times the lethal dose of morphine in her bloodstream based on an exam of her stomach contents toxicologist heather Din reported that cindy had orally ingested approximately 30 milligram tablets of zirazepam or up to 80 tablets of a higher dose in addition to that there were a lot of diazepam in her body which itself was lethal The method by which the morphine had been administered could not be determined, quote-unquote baffling the pharmacologist who analyzed the toxicology report. Traces of morphine were found in Cindy's stomach, though Dr. John McNeil stated that this amount could have resulted from intravenous injection of the drug as well. By McNeil's analysis, if Cindy had received the morphine via intravenous injection, she would have been rendered unconscious within mere minutes and would have died within several hours it was ultimately concluded by authorities that the overdose had been done so large that there was no reliable estimate of how long Cindy could have remained functional. That is a direct quote. The RCMP suspected Cindy's cause of death was likely suicide or an accident based on the assumption that she had fabricated numerous prior claims of assault and stalking. And this was quickly reported by several local news tabloids. Her personal private investigator, Caban, visited the morgue to examine her body on June 10th, and observed that her remains exhibited lividity, the setting of blood post-mortem, visible on the skin on the left side of her body. Because her body had been found laying on the right side, command felt that she may have died somewhere else, and that her body was relocated to the site where it was ultimately discovered. A memorial service was held for Cindy on June 14, 1989, two days after what would have been her 45th birthday. Police surveyed the memorial service, using hidden cameras, capturing the faces and license plate of all who attended. Her ex-husband, Makepeace, was not in attendance. In the summer of 89, the abandoned house where Cindy's body was discovered was eventually demolished. Now, naturally, an extensive inquest into Cindy's death was undertaken in the spring of 1990 in Burnaby, which consisted of five jurors and featured testimony from over 80 witnesses. The inquest was originally scheduled to run three weeks, but upon it... Quote, progressing much slower than expected unquote an additional 21 days were added the inquest which totaled 40 days was the longest and most expensive in British Columbia at the time among the evidence presented were the two recorded phone messages Makepeace had received on his answering machine during his testimony on the stand Makepeace made various accusations against Cindy's family alleging that her father had physically abused her throughout her childhood and that one of her brothers, May have molested her he also accused the police of attempting to frame him it was also revealed that shortly after her death cindy's parents uncovered a horde of medication in her home including sedatives and antipsychotics prescribed by her psychiatrist, which they disposed of by flushing down the toilet which i don't think you're supposed to do kind of contaminates the water and stuff her younger sister melanie also found a glass cutter in Cindy's purse along with a medical syringe kit, a urinary catheter, and saline solution in her bedroom. Jurors were presented with the graphic footage of Cindy's decomposing corpse as it was discovered at the scene, as well as numerous accounts of her mental state leading up to her death. Testimony was provided from several psychiatrists and psychologists including those who had personally treated Cindy over the years. Dr. Paul Termanson, Testified that he believed she was suffering from hysterical personality disorder, while Dr. Wesley Friesen, a longtime psychiatrist of Cindy's, stated that he suspected she had borderline personality disorder with elements of post traumatic stress disorder. By Friesen's account, Cindy possessed a tremendous amount of rage towards her father, and based on their numerous sessions, Friesen believed that there was a strong likelihood that her father sexually abused her when she was a child. Though she never indicated this to be true or the case at all. Attempts to discern whether or not Cindy could have bound herself in the state she was discovered were also focused during the inquest. Using the same length of nylon found binding her body, not expert Robert Chisnell, this guy comes up again, demonstrated in court how she could have bound herself within three minutes before the effects of the narcotics in her system would have taken effect. The inquest concluded on May 25, 1990, exactly one year after she had disappeared. After deliberations, the jury was unable to determine whether her cause of death was suicide, homicide, or accidental. It was ultimately ruled that Cindy had died of an unknown event, and the case was formally closed. After all that, after everything this woman went through, she was listed as an unknown event. Now, what do you think really happened to Cindy Was it all in her head? Did she make it up? Was it one of her other personalities, uh, if that was even a thing, doing this to her? I mean, if you saw Split, the movie, then you know that this is a thing that maybe can happen, but very unlikely. Obviously, that was a dramatization, and I'm not sure if there's any real cases of Split personalities. Sure, she had personality borderline disorder, but is that enough to create these things that she did to herself? Or is it more likely that somebody had been following her for the better part of a decade tormenting her and eventually, finally, killing her? The thing that strikes me the weirdest about this whole thing is that there were no other cases linked to her. You'd think if there was somebody involved or this was a murder and a stalking case that this would have happened to somebody else at some point in time since then or before then. This seems like something that has been practiced. This isn't a first time offender in my opinion. It's very meticulous. It's a very long game. So what is it? Is it some weird perpetrator, or does she do this to herself? In terms of her hog-tying herself, yes, it was shown that she could do it. However, that was done by a knot expert. Somebody who does this shit for a living. He could probably tie many, many knots that we've never even heard of in 10, 15 seconds. Cindy was drugged and then did this to herself. She spray-painted all these things on the wall, apparently, if you believe that she did it to herself, and then hogtied herself after injecting herself with a cocktail of drugs that would kill her within minutes. And remember, she wasn't the only witness to these weird events. Her ex-husband had seen some things. Her friends had seen some things. The people who lived in her house as tenants saw and heard things while Cindy was present. The man standing outside the house after some of the fires. People kind of lingering around her house. The phone calls that were received by reception at her work. And some of her friends even received phone calls. Makepeace received that weird phone call about drugs and a deal or something like that. All of this is just very strange. And I don't think she did it to herself. I just think the RCMP and the police. Because we all know my feelings on how the police can operate at times. Sometimes they're wonderful people who do their job exquisitely. Sometimes they're lazy pieces of shit who just write things off because they don't want to fucking deal with it. And I feel like that was the case here. They spent so much time, so many resources, and so much money on investigating these claims that they couldn't figure out. So they just go, yeah, she probably did it to herself. And that was that. Sure, she was depressed and had some sort of mental disorder. But that doesn't mean she's suicidal. That doesn't mean she would actually go through with killing herself. I don't know. This is one of those cases where it just kind of perplexes me to the nth degree. If only we knew what happened, and if only this wasn't formally closed as an unknown event, then it could still be investigated to this day. Whatever happened to the private investigator Kaban, I don't know. Maybe he still works on this case in his spare time, if he's still even alive. Remember, this whole thing started like 40 years ago. So that's a long time for somebody to be investigating something, especially going on into their 70s or 80s now, assuming he was in his 30s or so at the time. Very suspicious, very sad. Let me know what you think on social media. Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, and uh, let me know your thoughts on what happened to Cindy James. But otherwise, this was it for this week. I really do hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify or on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever one of you like the most. If you do leave that five-star review, feel free to let me know, and I will give you a shout-out on the show, or if you do leave one on iTunes, I'll read it out if it's five star and nice and friendly. And if you want to find me on social media, you can absolutely do so on Twitter at Horror Shots Prod is in production, or on Instagram at Omnus Origins Pod, or on Facebook at HorrorShots. So until next time, you lovely, lovely people. Have a good one.